brothers and sisters, we're going to continue on in our series this morning. We started it last Sunday, looking at the Christian and the rainbow flag. And what we did is we charted out a biblical theology of sexuality. We started in Genesis and we moved all the way to the book of Revelation. And so this morning we're going to continue on in this. And so our sermon text this morning is going to be in the book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. Hear the word of our God. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Oh, Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Amen. So the rainbow flag... That's how we started last week, and we'll start there this week as well. The rainbow flag and its, its virtual omnipresence in our society gives us a truth to consider. And the truth to consider is this. As Christians, we live in a hostile environment, a culture hostile to the Christian faith. Aaron Wren, in an article for the journal called First Things, calls our present situation as he thinks about it and meditates on it a negative world. And he paints a picture of what this means. He writes in his article saying, society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings with it negative consequences. And so what this article does is it calls for situational awareness. We need to understand where we're at and what's going on around us. We don't live in a positive world. What's a positive world? A positive world affirms Christianity and promotes its doctrines as good for the flourishing of humanity. Nor do we live in a neutral world. Well, what's a neutral world? Well, it's a society that just simply puts up with Christians. It, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. These worlds existed, and we probably can remember some of these worlds. 
But here's the thing. These worlds don't apply to us anymore. We live in a negative world, and no one's immune from the building pressure and the threat of these new negative consequences that come with being a Christian. And so it's there, as you think about it, at work, online, in the classroom, on the playing field, a negative world. And so we asked this morning, well, what is the Christian's response to living in a negative world? Well, there are a few options available for us. We first of all could start to carp and complain about it, and that's the temptation for some of us, especially as we get older. We just want to to complain about the world we're in. But as we think about it, carping is really unattractive. Even more, complaining is unproductive. No one ever produced anything good by by complaining. So we could try then the, the route of capitulation. We could just simply modify our understanding of God and His Word. Or we could even throw the whole thing out the window and start over with something else. But if you have an ounce of the fear of the Lord in your soul, you know that that's not a viable option. The word of Scripture stares us down. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Capitulation isn't an option. Or we simply could withdraw, build some tall walls around us and hope no one notices us and talks to us and wait until this whole thing blows over, if it will ever blow over. While that's tempting... It just doesn't fit the Christian calling. Who are we as Christians? Well, first of all, we are a missionary people. Jesus has called us in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, to to make disciples of all nations. We are a people who have been accused of turning the world upside down and, and disobeying the decrees of Caesar. Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. We are a people of ambition, holy ambition. We have Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, who says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. And above all, we are simply a people, as Revelation chapter 14, verse 4 puts it, who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's who we are. And so we can't complain, we can't capitulate, we can't withdraw. We must rather advance and fight and go, and that has to be our mindset. But here at this point, when we, when we make that point, we encounter a massive problem. Where do we go? Where do we fight? Where do we advance? What does that actually look like for us? And living in a negative world is a dizzying thing. You can imagine in your head, it's a bit like, being put down on an office chair, one of those swivelly ones, and and your friend comes along and starts whipping you around in circles. And then you have to get off, and what happens? Well, everything's turned upside down and inside out. Your legs just don't want to work and carry you forward. It seems like you forgot how to, to walk, and now you're just stumbling around, and that's what it seems like sometimes. And so what we need are specifics in this negative world. Where do we need to advance? Well, this is where you need to advance. Where do we need to go? Well, this is where you need to go. How do we fight? Where do we fight? Well, this is where you need to fight. And so the last call of last week was was simple. As we looked at the biblical story of sexuality, the call of the sermon was this. Know the Bible's teaching on sexuality. Not only know it, but, but hold on to it. Hold fast to it. And love it and treasure it and proclaim it. And so this Sunday, we want to advance the call a bit more. And so the call this morning is this, build a home. You need to build a home. And what I mean is not literally a physical home, brick and mortar and and two-by-fours, though you're going to need one of those probably to make this work. 
Rather, what I mean by making this call build a home is the pursuit of fatherhood and motherhood, having children and raising them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And we can put this in a more forceful way. We engage this negative world and we meet the rainbow flag head on. How? We do it by building homes. And this is where the battle is going to be won or lost. And so the call this morning is simple. You need to build a home. And as we think about that, and if we're honest with ourselves, that call, build a home, doesn't have a lot of pizzazz or zing to it. It probably doesn't get your adrenaline pumping, your heart rate up. And if you have kids, especially young kids, I have young kids, you might be confused about this call. Well, build a home, what do you mean? What am I doing all the time at home? I'm trying to clean up the floor after the last meal so my kids don't walk into a food bomb and spread it all over the house. What am I doing right now? Well, I'm not fighting social elites or these errant philosophies. I'm in a standoff with a two-year-old who doesn't want to share his toys with his, his sister. And there's a temptation for us, and we're, we're prone to believe it. It seems that we just need to endure the child-rearing days until we can get on with something more important, something more essential for the kingdom of God and the advancement of Christ's church. And so how is this a battle plan? How is this a strategy in the negative world? Well, that's what we need to figure out. So as we look at the two Psalms that we read, both of them point toward the family. It's obvious. We've got Psalm 127, verse 3. The psalmist is trying to get our attention. The psalmist says, Behold, look, see, children are a heritage from the Lord. You move down two verses to Psalm 127, verse 5, and it's extolling the virtue of having children, multiple children. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And then there's Psalm 128, verse 3, and it's giving us this picture of domestic bliss, the good life. The psalmist says, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. And so as we think about these two psalms, we can agree with the sentiment of these psalms. Children are a gift from God. Who can argue with that? We can also agree with the sentiment that, that family life is rich and it's rewarding. We've experienced moments like that. But as we start to think hard about all of this, we have to ask, well, what does any of this about the family, what does Psalm 127, what does Psalm 128 have to do with living in a negative world and engaging the rainbow flag? How does this connect? And so when we read these psalms by themselves as just standalone songs, they seem a bit sentimental to us. They seem like they would fit a, a baby shower. You'd want to take out Psalm 127 and read it, especially if someone was having their third or fourth child. You might want to bring it out at a wedding and giving this picture of domestic bliss that you could have. But when you place these songs in their context, their literary context, a different picture begins to emerge. These two psalms are a battle plan for Israel. And so if you look at Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, you'll notice that there's a, a superscript there. The superscript says, a song of ascents. And if you have your Bible open and you start flipping a few pages, you'll notice that there are a lot of other psalms that have the same title. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 all bear this title, a song of ascents. And well, what does that mean, a song of ascents? Well, we could just give a translation like this, the, the songs of the goings up. And that's helpful. What are these songs about? They're about a, a journey. Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 is telling a journey story. And this journey is, is a physical journey. So you're leaving somewhere and going somewhere else, and it's also a spiritual journey. There's this interaction with God and a growing knowledge of God and His ways. So what I want to do to begin is tell this journey story 
from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And so the journey begins in Psalm 120. And so if you flip there, you'll find that the psalmist is in great distress. He's oppressed. He's surrounded by lying lips and deceitful tongues. A war is being waged against his soul. He says in Psalm 120, verse 7, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. But this is not the extent of the psalmist's problems. He's in this war of words, but he's also a man exiled from the presence of God. He's living outside the domain of Israel. He's in Meshech and Kedar, 120, verse 5. And so this man is in great distress, spiritually, locationally. And so what does he do? Well, he turns his attention to the Lord. Psalm 121, verse 1. He begins to pray. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So this man is in distress and he orients his vision to the Lord for help. And what happens? Yahweh helps this man. He brings him to the holy city. Chapter Psalm 122, verse 2. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. God has helped this man. And we might be tempted to think, well, the journey is over now. This man is exiled. Now he's in Jerusalem. What else is there to say? Why are there more psalms about this journey? But here's the thing. Once the psalmist is in the holy city, and once the excitement wears off, he soon realizes that the holy city is not a good place. The psalmist, once he's in the city, is held in contempt and ridiculed by the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Psalm 123, verse 4. And he finds that many of the rulers there are actually evildoers, Psalm 125, verse 5. So this man, he's on his journey, he, he wants to go to the city of God, and he makes it to the city of God with the help of God. And once he's in the city of God, he realizes that there's great trouble in the city of God. And so his journey started with prayer, and now he's, now he's in the city, and so he begins to pray all the more. And so he prays with fervency, he prays, Psalm 126, verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord. And then he begins to pray for the Lord to, to, to work in his righteousness. Psalm 129, verse 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backwards. And above all, he wants all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to, to turn back to the Lord and to experience the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of the Lord. Psalm 130, verse 7, he prays. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him plentiful redemption. And so we're following this story, and it's, it's got some typical plot lines. If you've read a book about a journey or watched a movie about a journey, the journey begins in trouble, and then the journey goes and progresses, and then there's peace, but soon there's, there's greater trouble, and that's happened in this, this set of psalms. There was distress. He traveled. He got to the holy cities. There's excitement, but soon as he's in the holy city, there's trouble, and then he prays to God. But also typical of any good journey story, there's a happy ending. You, you finally get to where you want to go. And this happens too in this set of psalms. There's a happy ending. So the journey began in distress and trouble. There's a war of words. There's this hostility. The psalmist is surrounded. But you come to the end of these psalms and you find Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The end of the journey, there's, there's peace now. The story began in exile. This man is living outside the presence of the Lord. But now, Psalm 134, verse 2, the psalmist is in the temple. He's in the presence of the Lord. And now he's instructing the worshipers of the Lord. He is saying, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. 
There's a happy ending to this journey story. There's peace, and there's the presence of the Lord himself. And so we can circle back to our two psalms, Psalm 127, Psalm 128, and we ask, well, what are these two psalms doing in this journey story? Well, this is what they do. They serve as the hinge in this set of songs spanning these 14 psalms. These psalms lie precisely at the center of this journey story. They are the key to this great reversal that we see taking place from, from distress to peace, from exile to renewed fellowship with the Lord. They're at the very heart of it. And what begins to emerge when we study this journey story is a clear picture. These two songs are not sentimental in nature. They're not cute or, or cuddly or domesticated. No, they're songs for war. These are songs for generals and soldiers fighting in a negative world in hope of inheriting a new world. And we get this truth, the godly will fight and win by building godly homes and by raising godly children. The godly will fight and win by building godly homes and by raising godly children. That's the message of these two psalms. And if that's true, and if I've portrayed this story in the right way, this means that we need to give these two psalms our undivided attention because they are powerful for us in our present moment. And if we were to ignore these two psalms, I think we're going to commit a fatal error. So with the rest of our time, I want to set before you five observations on these two psalms. And the goal of these observations is essentially application. I want to go to these psalms and I want to shed some light on the plan of God and I want to, to shed some light on the plan of God so that you might see what God wants for your life in Christ. And not only see it, but then after being see the plan of God, be, then I want you to go and begin to pray about it and to think about it and to meditate how you might implement God's plan in your own life. What Psalm 127, what Psalm 128 looks for you. So five observations. So let's start with the first one. Observation number one. Families are praiseworthy and desirable. So these two psalms begin their work by working on our hearts, rewiring them, what they love, what they cherish. And so you can't help but notice these two psalms in this journey story are full of optimism and joy. And they sing the truth right into our hearts. The family is good. The family is lovely. The family is desirable. The family is to be praised. Just look at the text with me. Children are what? Psalm 127, verse 3, puts it like this, a heritage from the Lord and a reward. And so what should we say about the man who has children, even many of them? Well, we should call this man, Psalm 127, verse 5, blessed by God. And what does the good life look like? What does a happy man look like? Well, Psalm 128, verse 3, puts it like this, a, a fruitful and productive wife in the home and children around your table growing up like olive shoots. That's the blessed life. That's the happy life for a righteous man. And so as we think about this language, families are good, lovely, desirable to be praised. The applications start to flow. So first application, this is for parents, especially parents with kids at home. Question, can you sing these psalms with joy and a glad heart? These songs are optimistic. They're joyful. Can you sing these songs with joy and a glad heart? And why do we ask that question? Well, we ask this question because gladness, joy, and happiness are key to this battle plan. If the home is a sour and sad place, if it's, if it's melancholy, what's going to happen to the harvest you're raising? It's going to be spoiled. 
And so if you can't sing these songs with joy and gladness and happiness, what should you do? Well, you should go to the Lord and ask him to change your heart. Rewire my heart so that I might sing about the family as Psalm 127 does and Psalm 128 does. And here's the good thing. A changed heart, one made happy by God, is going to change the character of your home. So that's for parents. Now I want to to focus in on singles, especially those between like 16 and 30. So university, college, new career. I want to ask the same question. Can you sing these psalms with gladness? Can you sing these songs with gladness? Do you prize what God prizes? Or to put it another way, are you setting your sights upon that which calls blessed and good? Is that what you're striving for? Is that your aim? Are you readying yourself? Are you preparing yourself to engage in the battle by building homes for God's glory? Does that get you excited? And then there's an application for all of us. Whether you're old, whether you're married, whether you're widowed or childless or single, can't you see the goodness of God here? We don't serve a cruel God, a heartless God. He doesn't push us down into a trench filled with mud and bluck and blood, saying to us, here's the battle, go fight, carry on right here in the mud and the blood and the muck. Rather, what does God do? Well, look at the battle plan, Psalm 127, Psalm 128. What does he do? He sets us down not into a trench. He sets us down into families. And what does he do? He pours out rich blessings on our heads. And now he says to us, here's the battle. I've given you all of these blessings. Now carry on, go and fight. Observation number two. Children are weapons and soldiers. Psalm 127, verses four and five. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And so the imagery of these two verses is right from the battlefield. We've got arrows, we've got quivers, we've got warriors, we've got enemies, we've got victory and defeat. And what these images are doing, they're reframing our perspective about parents and children. What are children for? Children are for war. And what then must we do? What is our parenting about? It's training these children for war. We just need to hover over these verses for a minute. Look at verse 4 with me. The, The psalmist says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And so we can just picture that in our mind. We can picture the battle. There's the warrior in the midst of the battle. The the enemies are before him. And so he reaches back to his quiver and he grabs an arrow and he he puts it on his bow and he he draws it back and he he releases it and flies through the air and it strikes his enemy. So what are children for? The psalmist is saying, that's the image. That's what I want you to think about. That's what children are for. We deploy them to strike down our enemies. But this image gets even richer when we place it in the story of this big journey story. So we have to read the Psalms in context. They're just not standalone songs. So go back with me to Psalm 120, the beginning of the journey. So in the beginning of the journey, when the journey starts, the psalmist, he's overcome with distress. He's in a war. His enemies are all around him. His situation is desire. And so what does the psalmist do? Well, he's a godly man. And so he goes to the Lord and he begins to pray. But he has a specific prayer. Psalm 120, verse 4. Listen to what the psalmist says. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. And so just think about that for a moment. This man is surrounded. He's in distress. He's in trouble. He's surrounded. He's hurting. And so what does he do? He turns to the Lord and he prays this. Sharp arrows, Lord, please. 
then we come to Psalm 127, verse 4, and what happens? We come to this verse, and the the lights turn on. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. This man is praying for sharp arrows. He prays for them. And what does the Lord give to this man? He gives to him children. The Lord is saying, I have answered your prayer. This is what you need. Look at verse 5 with me. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And again, we have to put this verse into context. We can go back to Psalm 120. And this man is not not in a war of, of fists and swords. He's in a war of lying lips and deceitful tongues. And so great was this persecution this man of God was experiencing. He was calling it a war. But now we come to to our text, Psalm 127, verse 5, and this man has promised what? He's promised victory. He's going to stand in the gate and he's going to stand tall and strong against all of his enemies. He shall not be put to shame. That's glorious. And we ask, why? Why won't this man be put to shame? What has, what has changed for this man since Psalm 120? Well, we see it. What's changed? This man has now children from the Lord. The Lord has answered his prayer. And so this man can now go to the gate and face his enemies. And he doesn't face his enemies all by himself, but he goes with the sons and the children that he has raised. So think about this. This man, when his hands grow weak and tired, he has a son there to strengthen him. When this man is in the gate and he grows discouraged and downcast because of all the opposition coming his way, he looks to his left and he looks to his right and he sees some number one and he sees some number two standing there with him and then he carries on. And what the most glorious thing to think about is this, and when this man grows too old and too tired and too feeble to carry on, he can simply sit down and sit aside and let his son take the lead and bear the burden and stand with his own sons. And so, parents, there's an application for us here. What do we need to do? Well, we need to meditate on these two images. We need to meditate on the warrior in the battle with his bow and his quiver full of sharp arrows. And there he is making his stand, firing arrow after arrow after arrow. We need to meditate on the man standing in the gate. And why can he stand tall? Why will he not be ashamed? He has his sons. He has his children with him. And so I urge you, meditate on those images and and just don't meditate on them, but let them take control of your dreams and your ambitions for your family. What do I want? Oh, I want sharp arrows. What do I want? I want to be a man who can stand in the gate of the city and there are my sons by my side. I want that more than anything. And don't just meditate and dream, but begin to pray. Go to the Lord and pray. Say, Lord, I desire more than anything else sharp arrows in my quiver. Lord, I want sons, I want daughters, I want children who will stand by me someday. Lord, I want that. Would you please give that to me? Observation number three. Weapons must be made and soldiers must be trained. This is a rather obvious observation. Arrows don't grow on trees. I mean, it's, it's easy. You can go out in the bush. We were in the bush this weekend on the men's retreat, and I didn't see any arrows out there. 
They're not naturally occurring. They have to be made. A shaft has to be fashioned of good, solid wood, and and fletchings have to be carefully and meticulously applied so that the air will fly straight, and the head must be sharp, razor sharp, so when you you hit hit your target, it actually does the damage that it should. And the same is true for children. Children are not automatically a blessing from the Lord. You can have a 12-passenger van full of children, but if you don't train them or instruct them, they won't be fit for any sort of good. They'll just give you heartache and pain. You can have arrow after arrow after arrow, but if it isn't a straight arrow, you can shoot it, and it won't do anything. And perhaps we must think about this. If we don't train them, they'll become a weapon against us. We'll go to the gate, and there our children will be there standing against us, or we'll be in the battle And there comes the arrow, our own child, striking us. Weapons must be made and soldiers must be trained. And the key to this is in Psalm 128, verse 1. The psalmist says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying this, the whole battle plan is dependent upon fathers and mothers who fear the Lord and who commit themselves to following God's law and words. And so we can go to the application and we can ask, am I parenting in the fear of the Lord? Am I a parent who raises my children according to the word and law of God? Now, for those questions to do us any sort of good, they actually have to connect to us. They they have to connect to our negative world. They have to connect to the rainbow flag specifically because that's what this sermon series is about. They need to, as the old preachers would often say, they need to come and search us. Am I parenting in the fear of God? Am I parenting according to the word and law of God? So here's an attempt. Are you raising your children to be gay? Just think about that. Am I raising my children to be gay? What do we mean by such a thing? We'll just ask a few questions. Do you feed your children the truth of the scriptures on Sunday, like we're doing now, but then on Monday, pile high their plate with the doctrines of inclusivity and gay love and gender fluidity and and the truth that you can just be whatever you want to be, whatever your heart dictates? Or to put it like this, do you on Sunday put church clothes on your children and then later on in the week, maybe a Wednesday or a Thursday, dress them up in the colors of the rainbow? And this is the line of questioning that we need to submit ourselves to and think about we should ask more questions, even more penetrating questions of our hearts if we want to apply the scriptures. And the reason we do this is this, because we can't expect to have sharp arrows in our quiver if they've been taken up and swallowed by this negative world. We can't expect to have our children next to us in the gate if they've been catechized and indoctrinated by the rainbow flag itself. And so this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Sharp arrows, righteous children, children who are going to stand with you in the gate, they're costly. Parent, understand this. They're going to cost you your time and your money and your energy, even your sanity sometimes. And so we read Psalm 128, verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. And the psalmist asks us this morning, the word of God asks us, are you willing to spend yourself for this vision of the family? Are you willing to run after with everything you have and have the ambition to pursue these these images of the sharp arrow, this image of the man standing in the gate with his children by his left and by his right? Are you willing to run after it and spend yourself for it? Because that's what obedience looks like and means. Observation number four God builds homes. God builds homes. 
And so we can see, at least so far in the sermon and from these two psalms, that parents have obligations laid upon their shoulders. You have to fear the Lord. You have to obey the word of the Lord. And this must be evident as we go about our lives together in a family. But here's the thing. Our obedience is not enough. Our fear of God is not enough. This whole enterprise, this whole battle plan is dependent upon the working of God's grace. Or we could say this, building homes is a matter of supernaturalism. God himself, if our labors are to amount to anything, must come near to our families and make use of all of our efforts and make use of all of our obedience. Psalm 127 verse 1 puts it like this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so we cannot think of the parenting practice like a vending machine. You just put in your coins, and out comes the candy bar. You just put in some discipline, you put in some instruction, you put in some Bible reading, you put in some love, and out comes a a sharp arrow, and a son and daughter will stand with you in the gate. No, Psalm 127 pushes this on us. If our endeavors, if our obedience is going to be anything, God must come and help. And so we have to take this to heart. Our endeavors by themselves, standing on their own merits, are simply vanity and nothingness unless God himself comes into the home and starts building in the home. And this is a great comfort for us. We live in a negative world, and when you live in a negative world, anxiety comes with that and begins to creep in us. How can I do this? How can we make it? But we don't depend upon ourselves, our own efforts. What are we? We are a gospel people. We depend upon the God of the covenant, a God of mercy and grace and faithfulness. We depend upon the God of the cross, a God who forgives and pardons sins. We depend upon the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day, a God of power and glory. And so what do we do? We hear the word of God and we obey it and do it. But while we obey it and do it, we don't rest upon our obedience. We rest upon the working grace of God. We go to work and we work hard, but all the time we're looking hard, we're praying to God, would you bless this work right now? Because I understand, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And this changes everything when we really get this. And so we can, in this negative world, do our best as God calls us to, and then simply go to bed and rest at night. And why can we go to bed and rest at night? Because we know God is working for us. Psalm 127, verse 2. It is vain that you rise up early and go to late, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Why? For he gives to his beloved sleep. Observation number five, the last observation. God is super abundant in grace. So we're looking at Psalm 127, 128, and Psalm 128 finishes with a prayer. Verses 5 and 6. The psalmist begins to pray. He says, "Lord, The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And these two verses, if we take them to heart, are a pessimism killer. And we need this. The psalmist won't let us go about moaning and complaining about our situation and how hard it is. He won't let us do that. And we can learn as this man prays for us. 
What is he doing? He's teaching us that the future is bright. Prosperity is coming to Jerusalem, he says. Godly children are going to be raised up so much so that there are going to be generations of them. And this man is so excited in his prayer as he's praying for these things, the prosperity of Jerusalem, the people of God, as he's praying for these generations, he goes in his excitement to say, you could see these in your lives. You see it. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And we ask, well, what makes this man so optimistic? We know his story. We've been studying it from Psalm 120. This man has been in, in distress and anxiety and trouble. How can this man be so optimistic about the future of Israel, his own children? Well, the answer is this. He knows that his God is super abundant in grace and that his God loves to lavish grace, great grace on those who fear his name and obey his commandments. Psalm 128, verse 4, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. And so the application is this. God is rich, and his grace is superabundant. And because of that, the future belongs to those who fear the Lord. And that's how we should operate as we parent, as we raise our families, as we build our homes. The future belongs to those who fear the Lord. And so this morning, we've worked through the, the story of the Song of Ascents, tracing out Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. We've looked at Psalm 127, 128, made five observations, and we can see the battle plan of God. What must we do? Well, here is the call, build a home. And so, brothers and sisters, may the grace of God meet you as you go about living out this vision for the family. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your word because it is clarifying. And we need clarity in our day that we might not be confused running about here and there. And so we ask now, would you give us obedience to fear your name and to follow your word? We ask, would you pour out your blessings and your grace upon us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.